everybody. Um, we were having some mic issues at the beginning. Can, uh, I feel like I'm in the army days. Can you hear me in the back? All right, very good. I've been told my voice carries. So we are, um, I'll tell you what, before we get into the text, I know Mike just prayed for us. Um, I, I want to pray again. Um, Father God, thank you for my friends, my brothers, and my sisters. Father, be with us today. Please get me out of the way. Please, please let people connect with you in your word. Please let them know you better. And Father, please just work through us, speak to us, that we may go out and love this city all the more. And I ask this in your name. Amen. Well, um, so we're in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12 this morning. I believe it should be in your bulletin insert. But before, uh, before I read it to you, I want to play a little trivia game. All right? As I've read the commentaries on 1 John, all of them, all of them, conservative, liberal, all over the place, will say that John is essentially trying to do three things in this letter. You don't need to write these down, but the first is the truth. He's concerned with the truth and what the truth of our faith is. The second is he's concerned with living righteous lives before God. And the third is that he's concerned with us being more loving people. As I read to you God's word, let me see if if you can figure out which one of these three. So truth, righteousness, love. Let's see if we can figure out which one it is. It's very tough. You're going to have a tough time getting this. Let's read. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God love. In this, love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Did you catch it? All right. Tried to make it a little obvious for you. You probably caught on that today's passage has a little bit to say about love. As I was thinking through this passage on love and how our world thinks of love and how the Bible communicates love, I was doing some research on love. And I found, I found this amazing website. You may have heard of it. It's like a paragon of like um, our cultural identity. It's called the Urban Dictionary. And in the Urban Dictionary, people can enter their definitions, and you can read them so you can catch up on the latest lingo, uh, know what's going on. And and I just want to read these to you. Here's the top definition of love in the Urban Dictionary. Love is nature's way of tricking people into reproducing. Another one is this. This one one was my favorite. My wife and I got some some laughs out of this one. And I read this one. Remember, my father-in-law is present today. You have great chemistry. You find her beautiful. You want to spend time with her. You see a future together. You introduce her to your family. You include her in all your plans. You are more romantic. All right, at this point, I'm going to stop. It's like check, 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 father-in-law, check. All right, this next one. You always take her side. No comment. She makes you want to be a better man. Here's the thing on this this definition. 
Every sentence that I just read to you had this paragraph of just flowing explanation about how great love is, how wonderful it is. It was like a pancake drenched in syrup that you could wring out. All right? My wife, I looked at my wife and go, a middle school girl wrote this. No offense if you're in middle school and a girl. All right. But it was funny. Almost all the entries that I read on love went straight to romantic love. And I think for us, in our society, a lot of when we hear love and what we think of as love, we think of the deepest form of love as romantic love. I'm not against romantic love. I like it a lot. But the Bible speaks to an even deeper love, an even broader love than just the narrow romantic love. And as John writes to this congregation, he explains that to these people. Love is more than just some spark that goes off and leads to hunky-doriness. Today, let's learn about a better love. And let's learn it in this love that we have, looking at loving others better. Today, I hope you will take away, if nothing else, that because of God's love for us and Jesus' coming and dying, we are empowered to love one another. All right, let me say that again. I hope that today we will take away that because of God's love for us and sending Jesus to live and die for us, we are empowered to love one another. And we will do this in three ways. It's a three-step process. First, we will describe the flow of love. Next, we will diagnose false love. And then finally, we will dissolve it in the fountain of God's love. Our first point, let's describe the flow of love. I want to pick it up in verse 7 and read to you. Beloved. Okay, stop right there. We have a lot of people in the military that are here. And we have guys that are in the military. I, was, I just recently resigned my commission. Um, when you hear beloved, most guys that I know of in the military, you don't exactly relate to that. It's like, private, where's your radio? Do push-ups, beloved. You know, or it's, it's just a word. It's like being called lemon drop or honey pie. And we might have a tough time relating to that word right there. However, okay, in the military, I want to call us all to move past that for two reasons. All right? As we read this passage, it goes on. Let us love one another. We are beloved because we love each other. And then the very next clause is, for love is from God. There's love from God and there's love from each other that makes us beloved. Let's own that. Let's dig into that. All right, this first phrase, let us love one another. We're going to call this today horizontal love. This is like me having a pipe connected to other people that know Jesus and love Jesus, and there is a love that flows both ways through that pipe. That's let us love one another, horizontal love. Next, for love is from God. That means there is a vertical pipe, if you read the rest of the verse. When you are known by God and know God. When you are born of God, a child of God, you are connected through a vertical pipe to God's love where he loves you, you love him. All right? Do you get that vertical, horizontal? Now here's how they fit together. What's connecting these two clauses? Let us love one another and love is from God. The word for. Think because. Let us love one another because love is from God. This is the way love flows. God is love, verse 8 down into us, and that same love, his love, out of us to other people. This is the way it works. And let me show you some other verses in this passage that connect to this and reinforce this. Do you see that beloved in verse 7? Let's go to verse 11. Beloved, 
If God so loved us, vertical, we also ought to love one another, horizontal. Do you see the connection? And then in verse 12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, horizontal, God abides in us. And whose love? His love, vertical love, is perfected in us or is perfected among us. Do you see the vertical and the horizontal? And also, do you see this pattern of beloved, horizontal, vertical, verse 7, beloved, horizontal, vertical, verse 11? Do you see how it bookends the rest of our passage and forms almost like a parenthesis around it? I bring that up just not to reinforce and show you how I'm getting this point from the scriptures, but also, if we can see the structure of the scriptures, if we can see how they're written, we can be better Bible readers. Think about how this will enrich our CBR, or if you do something else to connect to God through the Bible. Think about how reading the Bible and seeing the structures makes it more exciting. It draws you in, and it becomes that much more life-giving, and you get exposed all the more to that vertical love that fuels the horizontal love. All right, I hope I've convinced you of vertical love, uh, horizontal love, and the connection between the two. Vertical's got to be in place, then the horizontal. Good? All right, thank you. I like this side. All right. <laughs> All right, now, with this in place, let's look at how life gets better when we're open to God's love and letting that be the source of our loving one another. I want to move through some of our relationships in life and show you how it frees us. Friendship, let's start there. If our love for others is determined, if this is us, if our love for others is determined by the love that flows down from God, our love for others is not dependent upon you, another person, and that person loving you. You see that? I'm going to say that again. If our ability to love is determined by God's love for us, when Jesus says, love others as you yourself would be loved, you can love them when they're not loving you. All right? I need to hear that like every day. Now, there's a notion out there. There's a, there's a, it's popular in counseling. It applies mostly to marriages, but I think it applies very much to friendships. And I want to speak against it, or I want to speak a caution. Let me say it that way. I want to speak a caution against it. Has anybody heard of the love cup? And how I love you, it fills up your love cup. And then because you're filled up in your love cup, you can now love me. Do you see the fallacy in that? There's no vertical love. You're not going to love somebody when they're not loving you. They haven't filled you up. If I go to my wife and I say, hey, honey, I want you to fill up my love cup because I desperately want to get you flowers, but you need to fill me up so I can do it. What's she going to say? <clears throat> you need to get me flowers to fill up my love cup so I can fill you up. Do you see how this instantaneously brings us at loggerheads? And do you see how we need to be connected to the vertical love so that we can live out this biblical love? And do you see how much better that is? That's friendships. I know I talked about marriage. Let me explain marriage even deeper. My wife and I have counseled some couples. uh, Premarital, married, uh, man, one hard one where people were divorcing. Um, In every situation that my wife and I have counseled people uh, working on their marriages, there's always one, and it's usually both. But there's always one who is fearful that they will not be loved. And what do they do? They withhold love. To be fair, a lot of times this person or these people do not recognize that this is happening. But 
At the end of the day, when you ask the right questions, help them kind of explore why they're doing what they're doing, it comes out. The physical intimacy has stopped because of what I'm not getting. The kind words have stopped. The gifts, the surprises, the time spent together, the thinking well of each other and giving each other the benefit of the doubt has gotten turned off because I'm not being loved. Do you see how this flow of biblical love corrects this? Do you see how it calls us to something better? Do you see how you can live out for better or worse? So much better with this understanding in place? Parenting. When you're loved by God as his child, just take a moment, verse 7. Do you see where it says, whoever loves has been born of God? When you're a child of God, that same love of having God as a father, it speaks to you as a parent. All right? And here's one of the ways. This is not the only way, but here's one of the ways. You can love your child without worrying about what they think of you. To some of you, this might sound silly. I've got a five-year-old, I've got a three-year-old, and I've got a four-month-old. This pulls me. I think most parents feel this pull as well, just in talking to some parents. There's always this sense that if I do this, like what's going to happen in our relationship? But the love of God says we are free to correct and discipline our children. We're free to tell them, no, this isn't good for you. But because of the horizontal love of our love for our children, that is God's love being poured into us, we're free to do it without our tempers, our anger, or our sense of wanting to get even with our child kicking in. Some of y'all will laugh, but that's a very real dynamic in parenting. I think most of us have felt. Finally, I want to show you how hard words come into play. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 19, this is a book that John also authored. He authored 1 John. That one's obvious. Some of you may not know John wrote Revelation as well. He records some words of Jesus. This one's not going to make me popular, so I want to emphasize I'm the mailman on this one. I'm the messenger, (laughs) all right? Here's what Jesus, our Savior, Lord, King, brother, friend, the one who, how he loves us, here's what he has to say. Though, Jesus, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. God's love frees us from being a society that worries about offending people. If I can just put that out there. God's love says, I love you so much, I'm going to meet you in your sin and deal with it and not ignore it. And we can have people in our lives that see our blind spots and out of love can speak into them because of God's vertical love, but also because of the horizontal love, we don't have to speak like jerks. We can communicate this in gentle, kind, and winsome ways. The last thing I want to discuss is conversions. I've tried to show you how your life can be better when this view of biblical love is in place. Now I want to show how because of us and our love for each other, the outside world can be impacted. In John chapter 13, verses 34 through 35, Jesus says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Horizontal. Just as I have loved you, Vertical and horizontal. Jesus is God who loves us. He's also fully human who loves us. You also are to love one another. Return to the horizontal. Then he says in verse 35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We call that Jesus' apologetic. Let me read this statement for you again. 
by this all people will know that you are my disciples. Do you see how that statement implies that other people are close to us, are watching us, they're in our orbit? Do you have somebody you've been praying for for a long time to meet Jesus and to know his love? Do you have somebody where maybe their, their eternal security is something that keeps you up at night? It might, might be dad. It might be mom, a brother, a sister. It might be a son or a daughter. It might be just a close friend. It might be some of my old army buddies. It might be some of my fraternity buddies. But I think we all, when we come to know the love of Christ, we worry about other people. And we pray for them. And I want to encourage you to keep praying. But what Jesus is saying, and by this they will know you are my disciples, He's implying that we have to get them involved in community. I want to encourage you to continue to pray and to seek others to pray for the loved ones in your life. But I also want to encourage you, find a way to incorporate them, if not on Sunday, then in a life group. If they won't come to a life group, find some of the people in your life group or in the church and go hang out. Go to a bar, go shoot pool, go do whatever it is you'll do and have fun and let your love for each other, your Christ-given love for each other be on display. Now I hope I've uh, convinced you that this view of love is one that flows from the Bible, not from me. I hope I have shown you how life gets better when this kind of love is in place. But I think we all know that life doesn't work this way. It's not that clean. It's not that easy. And there's a reason for that. False love corrupts. False love corrupts the flow of love. And that false love is an excessive self-love. This is point number two. We need to diagnose false love. That self-love is prevalent in our society today was really seen and made obvious to me when I did a search on Amazon.com. I entered two searches. Uh, it was self-help and self-love. Add those together, you get 670,000 books, posters, brochures, pamphlets, whatever, on these topics. 670,000. When I entered loving others, when I entered helping others, I got 270,000 hits. It's two and a half to one. I think it's safe to say we have an overemphasis on self-love. Just watch a talk show. Listen to the language of a lot of TV programs. It's about me. You know, um, when I Googled self-love, I, I got lifehack.org. They had an article called 30 Ways to Improve Your Self-Love. 30 ways. All right? As I looked through these 30 ways, only six mentioned other people. All six of these read something like this. And just, just see if vertical love is fueling horizontal love in these statements. One of them was, you need to surround yourself with people who love and encourage you. Let them remind you just how amazing you are. You catch that? All right, next one. This one gets closer. Treat others with love and respect. I was like, we got a winner. We got one out of 30. Treat others with love and respect. Oh, wait a minute. It makes us feel better about ourselves. That's the motivation. That's the source. Filling my love cup. By loving other people, it makes us feel better about ourselves when we treat others the way we hope to be treated. The underlying sentiment in both of these statements, all right, and I'm not saying they're totally wrong, don't hear that, but there's an underlying assumption 
that horizontal love is the source of love, and we fill each other up, or we fill ourselves up, or other people fill us up. And that can lead to manipulative relationships where we use other people to get something out of them. This is the false love, self-love, that we need to diagnose. Now I want to return to the text and show you how I got that. Let's pick it up in verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. I know some of you might be like, John, it says, anyone who does not love, you're talking about self-love. It says not loving, but you're saying self-loving, that's a type of loving. Let me show you how I got there. I've got to back up for a minute, and I've got to show you how John is writing to his original audience before we bridge it to today. All right, that's another thing we do in Bible study is we learn what the author is saying to his original audience when we move there, then we move over here to how it applies to today. Here's why John is using those words and saying that to the particular audience he's writing to. John has either planted or been a part of a church planting team that started churches throughout the west coast of Turkey. You may have heard of Ephesus, the letters to the Ephesians. John may have been a part of that. He, he talked about Jesus to people, led them to faith, saw them come to believe Jesus, helped them repent of sin, grow in Christ. He probably married some of them. He probably baptized some of their infants. He may have officiated some of their funerals. And as he does this, there's a group of this church or of these churches that comes into contact with a teaching. And this teaching says, sin? Don't worry about that. What does it say about Jesus? It says the human Jesus was not the Christ. It says, so you don't need to worry about sin. It says what you need are these secret writings that we have. All right, if you've read the Da Vinci Code, if you've read Illuminati or um, Lost Symbol, Dan Brown. All right, entertaining books, but this is the kind of Christianity that he's using in those books where secret hidden knowledge and secret rituals are the way to move rather than God coming down to earth people using reason and experience to move upwards to God. He inverts that, or these people invert that. And what's happening as this is going on is the people who have moved away from John's church, gotten caught up in these teachings, they feel enlightened. They have knowledge other people do not have. Do you see how this becomes elitist? Do you see how this can lead to condescension? This is the spiritual pride that John is attacking in this statement, the one who does not love. And what's going on with these people is that in order to build more of a following, they're going back into John's church, and they're trying to pull people away from John's church. There is a self-love of this enlightenment, this having a follower, this having a name, this having a voice. There is a self-love that says, I'm going to set this church on the altar of me getting what I want. I don't care if this church is ripped apart. They love themselves that much. Do you see how I got that? That's John saying, the one who does not love. And that's how it comes to self-love in this text. We see this in other places in Scripture. People rebuffing God's love. People not loving each other so that they can get some self-love. Consider the garden with Adam and Eve. They sacrifice their relationship with God on an altar of gaining knowledge. Because they listen to a false teacher. Read the Bible. I don't have time to get in all the examples. For those of you who are more familiar with the Bible, David and Bathsheba might immediately spring to mind. But the Bible is full of people who do this. This is the testimony of humanity. 
And it doesn't stop at the end of the Bible. It continues today. Let me just show you some ways. Let me throw some examples out there. And let's see if we sit in this or not. When husbands and fathers excessively spend time hiding in bars, in front of TV screens, behind newspapers, or in their hobbies, they're putting their wives and children on the altar of self-love in the form of something like comfort. Do you see that? That's not the love of God flowing from a man to his own beloved that he's been given by God. And it brings death in families. This next one, I want to slow down. I want to stand over here. I want to be very careful. Like those of you who know me know that I can be pretty intense. I've been called one of the most regimented people in the church. So I want to dial it down a notch and just make sure this is John lovingly talking to us as a church. And I want to say, I don't, I know I'm not talking to everyone in the room here. All right? But when we don't serve on Sunday, can I just show you what happens? If, if, we're, if we're busy, and if that busyness is rooted in my hobbies, my not wanting to be inconvenienced, it's awkward to come here a little bit early or to stay a little bit late. Let me show you what happens. We have to rely on the people who do serve faithfully, and we have to call on them more and more. They get frustrated. Do you see how that sets the conditions? It doesn't rip the church apart. But do you see how that can have the effect of polarizing the church? I'm not saying anybody does that intentionally, but I'm saying it can happen. All right? I just want to ask you to consider, if you're sitting on a chair today, you've been loved. You got coffee. You've been loved. If you can listen to a service without having your kid crying on you, you've been loved. If you can listen to the service because someone else is watching another person's kid, you've been loved. I just want to ask you to join in that love as we love one another. Now, not to let myself off the hook, I want to talk about self-glory. All right? Self-glory is a way we can put other people on the altar of self-love and sacrifice them to get something for ourselves. One example of this is always needing to prove you're right. Do you know the person? I might know one of those people. All right? How many relationships do you think have been ended because we put other people on the altar of self-love in the form of just glorifying ourselves? Whether it's our need to be right in the form of, I need to be accepted, so I need to be right. Whether it's, I need my brilliance to shine forth. Whatever the case may be, when we seek attempts at our own glory, do you see how it leads to putting other people on the altar of self-love and we sacrifice them? Finally, control and dominance is huge in our society. When people will do anything to advance their careers, when people will manipulate other people into doing what they want, whether it's false promises, I give you physical intimacy, you give me this. We're using each other, we're controlling each other, and there's a dominance at play. We put other people on the altar of self-love in the form of self-advancement or getting something from someone. Sometimes, some of you have felt the effects of this when the whole company gets into trouble and you lose your job. Some of you in the military are like me where you've seen the wing, the battalion, the squadron, the company, be put on the altar so that somebody can get a good performance review and get promoted. 
That's not vertical love fueling horizontal love. That's putting other people on the altar of self-love and sacrificing them. When we sacrifice others on the altar of self-love, our false love, our self-love, shows we're no different than these false teachers. We're no different than Adam and Eve. We can weave ourselves into the story and see ourselves standing in this position. What do we do? I want to encourage you to think that that's a really bad question. It's not what do we do. It's what did he do. Whereas you and I dip into a false love and sin by sacrificing others on the altar of self-love. Jesus came and he sacrificed himself on the altar of God's love that our sin, our lack of love, can be atoned and we can be made right with God and with other people. This leads me to my third point. Once we've diagnosed false love, we dissolve it in the fountain of God's love. When you accept that our efforts at self-love have put others on the altar so we can get something, let's turn to God's demonstration of his love for us and be filled anew with his love. We'll pick it up in verse 9. I'm going to read from the NIV. I like the way this one's worded. This is how God showed, showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Now that one and only sometimes gets translated as unique. He sent his unique son. I love this. I love this and I need this so much. Watch how Jesus is unique. He alone was God's true son from eternity past, before there was a time. He was God's true son. And we, we're called children of wrath in Ephesians 2. We're called children of the devil in 1 John 3. He is unique. He alone lived as God the Son in heaven, enjoying perfect love with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. But he came. He broke that relationship And he came that we might live through him. He is unique. You and I cannot do that. In a time before time, Jesus agreed to leave that union in the halls of heaven to become a human and live the life of love that we don't and we can't always live. And love he did. He alone as a human loved God perfectly and loved people perfectly. He alone fulfilled vertical love and horizontal love. And before I get into the next part of the phrase, I want to say, I'm not just saying, here's Jesus, your example, go make yourself be like him. That's religion. I want to get to relationship. All right, in the rest of verse 9, it says, that we might live through him. Do you remember how we talked about fathers who hide and comfort? When we don't love God but pursue our comfort, we can go to a Jesus who leaves the comfort of heaven to live an uncomfortable life here. He said he wouldn't know where he laid his head each night. As you read the Gospels, you'll see that he had to get money from a fish. If you know that story, he didn't have money to pay the temple tax, so he sent one of his disciples to get a fish that had a coin in it. He didn't carry around money. All right, That's not a comfortable life. He did that because he loved us. Then we asked... Do you have issues serving other people? He is a king. A king. He is the rightful king. But he came and lived to serve others. He said, I did not come to be served, but to serve. His serving covers 
our lack of serving. And he did this because he loved us. Next was me. Do you live for your own glory? Like needing to prove that you're right. In John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays, Father, would you restore to me the glory that I shared with you before time began? And then as he continued that prayer, he said, would you have my disciples share in that glory? The glory we need and try to get on our own is a glory he gives us anyways. He covers our need for glory. And he did that because he loves us. Finally, we asked about dominance and control. Jesus is a king who came and lived, although a king, perfectly submitted to God's will. He lived righteously where we don't. He gave up control to God the Father. He did this because he loves us. Let's move into verse 10. I hope you see Jesus' perfect life lived for us. Let's move into verse 10 where it says this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Some of your translations might read propitiation. Just go with atoning uh, sacrifice there. In love, Jesus took that perfect life, that life that would be acceptable before God the Father, living the life you and I are supposed to live but can't and don't, And he went to the cross. And as he went to the cross as a sacrifice, a wonderful exchange was made possible where you and I don't live lives of love. He lived a life of love. The cross was like a great sin magnet pulling our lack of love through space, through time, landing on Jesus as Jesus paid the price for sin. As God poured out wrath and punished sin, Jesus took it from us. And it erases our lack of love. And when we come to faith in him, it puts his perfect life on us. The Christian life is not just follow Jesus' example. It's here's what he did. Here's what we don't do. And now when we have faith in him, if this is you and me not living a life of love, Jesus' acts of love, his righteousness gets put onto us. And as sure as you see my knuckles and not my finger, God the Father sees Jesus and not your sin. What kind of love is that? What kind of love propels that for God to become man, but to become man to die for us? I hope you see his love for you. I hope you see it poured out for you. I hope this melts your heart, wherever there might be a diagnosis of false love. I hope it melts it. And so when we say, harbor, city, church, now, go, love one another, that command is a joy and not a burden anymore. Do you see that? I'm not just saying that for rhetorical impact. I'm saying, do you see it's not an example? It's not a religion. Do this and this will happen. It's he did it for you. He's got you covered. And now, because of the gratitude of his covering us, we can go walk in his commands. Finally, if you have not put your faith in Jesus, do you see his love today? Do you see it in a new light? You can be a child of God with limitless love. 